The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Today's episode is Part 2 of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to Part 1, I recommend you go back an episode before listening on. Today we are going to return to the most haunted house in the world. It's called the Thornhill Mansion. Each of the mansion's 25 rooms has its own story, none of them hopeful or uplifting in any way. In the last episode of Terrifying Lies, I performed the mini-stories behind the first 14 rooms, each story accompanied by a piece of original music. Today, I plan to guide you through the remaining 11 rooms. Be warned, some of what you are about to hear might unsettle you. These recordings, of course, are based on a board game I created several years ago. The game is called Children, a horror game. If you want to experience the Thornhill Mansion in a more first-hand fashion, you can pick up a copy of Children, the horror game, at Amazon.com. Grab a flashlight, put on a jacket to shield you against cold spots. Make sure you have good running shoes because you never know when we might bump into something sinister. Let's head back into the Thornhill Mansion, you and I. The Master Bedroom During the summer months of 1939, the already eccentric Erwin Biddle spun from mentally touched to paranoid. In some respects, the children of the Academy viewed their headmaster's descent into madness as a blessing. The children used Biddle's nearly crippling fear of toys against him. Often they would steal food from the pantry or fruit cellar and hoard it in nooks around the mansion. By marking directions to these nooks in charcoal pictographs, the children could lead each other to caches of sustenance. To protect these caches, the children would often place their toys such that many sets of inanimate eyes stared at likely approaching intruders. This tactic effectively kept Erwin Biddle away. One afternoon, Elnora, one of the children, after being released from extended solitary confinement in the quiet room, decided on a ploy to imprison Erwin Biddle once and for all. She gathered a few of the children's toys, including her favorite, a shrunken head given to her by a homeless man she only knew as Old Nick, who had befriended her on the streets of New York City. With her toys in hand, she risked entering the master bedroom while the headmaster was at dinner. She placed the toys around the room in such a way that once Biddle entered, he would not be able to leave without passing through the gaze of several sets of glass and button eyes. To Elnora's horror, as she hung her shrunken head around the doorknob, she heard Biddle's boots approaching. With no time to escape, she hid in the master bedroom wardrobe. Biddle entered his room and began to dress for bed. With his pajama bottoms on and no shirt, he turned to notice several sets of eyes staring at him from different points about the room. The headmaster frenzied. He clambered over to the wardrobe and flew the doors open. Elnora avoided being spotted only by a fraction of a second. Biddle recovered a hunting rifle he kept in the wardrobe. 
the same rifle that brought young Christopher Thornhill to his tragic, accidental end. The headmaster threw back the bolt and began to fire, putting bullets into the walls and furniture, occasionally hitting one of the toys. A bullet pelted through the wardrobe and grazed Elnora on the upper arm. She bit her tongue and crouched down so she could watch Biddle through a keyhole. When the headmaster had his back to the wardrobe, she made a run for it. Biddle wheeled on the girl and fired twice but missed both times as she fled the master bedroom. Elnora's attempt to imprison the headmaster failed as from that day forward, Erwin Biddle carried Cornelius Thornhill's hunting rifle fully loaded at all times. The tour of the Thornhill Mansion continues on the third floor, the Spire. Some say that Brom Thornhill, the eldest son of Rule Thornhill, was the product of a taboo. Rule and his younger sister, Beatrice, bored after amassing their enormous fortune, became interested in spiritualism. Living in New York, the siblings became acquainted with first the writings of Pascal Beverly Randolph, then with the man himself. Randolph showered new ideas on Rule and Beatrice about life, death, and love. He introduced them to the esoteric ideas of the Rosicrucian manifestos and inducted them into a ritualistic society called the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. After attending a series of rites in the Brotherhood, Beatrice Thornhill became pregnant. Although it has never been proven, whispers filled the darkest corners of the societal elite that Rule Thornhill was the father. Beatrice died in childbirth and, citing his duty as a brother, Rule took the idiot child, whom he named Brom, to raise as his own son. Brom grew up a savant, dysfunctional socially. In an effort to find peace for the boy, Rule brought in tradesmen and teachers to introduce him to many crafts. Among these teachers was an organist named Charles Plitt. Young Brom showed an unnatural musical ability when placed at the keys of the organ. Rule and Charles had found a prodigy. Against Charles Plitt's desire to showcase the boy, Rule Thornhill provided a room equipped with a magnificent organ on which he could play day and night. After Rule's death, Cornelius Thornhill, Brahm's younger brother, continued to care for Brahm. He brought his brother to the Thornhill mansion and replicated the room his father had made for the boy in the spire of the house. Brahm played often on his organ and spent the rest of his slow passing time looking out at his father's grave in the garden west of the mansion proper. After Cornelius's death, by decree of his will, Brom remained in the spire as a permanent residence of the Thornhill Mansion, to be cared for by its subsequent owners until his death. Loft 
When the harvest wind blows, it is said that one can hear the distant sound of organ music. It is through this means that the loft and the spire, two rooms located on the third floor of the Thornhill Mansion, are connected. During the mansion's occupation by its original owner, the master of the house boarded his idiot brother, Brom, in the spire, where the savant unspooled the hours by playing a magnificent organ brought from the original Thornhill estate in Upper State, New York. Cornelius visited his brother on occasion. Sometimes he asked Brom why he played so often in his twisted key. Brom always responded by pointing at a stand-up mirror kept in his room. For the lady, Brom would say, his eyes welling with tears. Brom's playing filled the house indefatigably with dark refrains to the point of madness. On one occasion, during one of the few balls hosted by Cornelius, he visited his idiot brother's room to tell him that his playing was disturbing the guests. Brom responded by pointing at the mirror and saying, I must play for the lady. Brahm's unwillingness to stop forced Cornelius to remove the mirror from Brahm's room and place it in the loft. With the mirror gone, Brahm sank into darker depths of sadness and his playing ebbed. Allayed by the reprieve and the constant sound of organ music, Cornelius kept the mirror in the loft at the cost of his idiot brother's peace of heart, and some say, the remainder of his sanity. One evening, in melancholy on behalf of his idiot brother, Cornelius visited the loft to retrieve the mirror with the intention to return it to the spire. While moving the mirror, Brom began playing from the adjacent room. The image of a woman appeared in the mirror, causing Cornelius to retreat and cover his eyes. As he lowered his elbow to look at the glass, he recognized the face of his deceased aunt, Beatrice Thornhill, the alleged illegitimate mother of his idiot brother. Cornelius fled the loft, leaving the mirror prisoner as he locked the door behind him. <laughs> the Attic in September of 1957, after investing nearly $20,000 into renovating the Thornhill Mansion, Arthur Holland moved his wife, Leslie, and son, Alexander, into the house. Alexander, a curious boy, wasted no time before exploring every corner of the Thornhill Mansion. He became especially drawn to the attic of the house, where he found a few trunks and odd pieces of furniture that had been left untouched during the renovation. As Alexander spent more and more time in the attic, his behavior became erratic. Arthur often spotted his son coming down from the attic ladder in mid-conversation as if he had been visiting an old friend in the upstairs chamber. Arthur became more alarmed when Alexander donned an odd knitted suit and cap that he had found in one of the attic trunks. The boy walked the halls of the mansion with both hands up as if being escorted by a pair of invisible companions. At the age of 11, it seemed that the days of such childish delusions as imaginary friends should be in the past, and yet Alexander continued to foster a relationship with two unseen personalities. 
One afternoon, Arthur climbed the attic ladder to investigate and discovered that Alexander had made the upstairs room into a kind of shrine. At the center of his son's makeshift reliquary hung the tattered remains of a bone-colored dress suspended by a rope that crossed the room. There were also vintage photographs, both hung on the walls and spread across the floor, of what appeared to be a traveling show called Nicolas Noir's Midnight Carnival and Sideshow. Two recurring characters showed up predominantly in the photographs, a clown and a bearded lady. Arthur found an inscription on the back of one of the photographs that read, Love Forever, Griefer, plus Angelique. Arthur consulted Gerald Rifkin, a family doctor, asking for advice on what to do with his son. Rifkin spent hours interviewing young Alexander and ultimately recommended that the boy be sent to the Utica Psychiatric Center for an extended stay under state-of-the-art modern psychiatric care. Arthur regretfully acquiesced to Rifkin's recommendation and sent the boy away. Months later, after repeated unsuccessful attempts at correspondence with his son, Arthur traveled to Utica to see his boy's progress. Upon reaching the asylum, he was discouraged to be kept from visiting Alexander by the boy's primary psychiatric caregiver, a man named Dr. Reginald DeGlass. Incensed, Arthur Holland insisted on making contact with his son. Dr. DeGlass responded by bringing out a scrapbook of photographs he kept of his patients. He flipped through the pages to a section of the book dedicated to Alexander. As Arthur perused the photographs, a feeling of dread crawled into him. Alexander had continued to wear the knit suit he had found in the attic of the Thornhill Mansion. In nearly every photo, the spectral shapes, two figures appeared. One, a bearded woman wearing a bone-colored dress. The other, a tall clown. Reasoning that the Thornhill Mansion was not a fit place for his son, Arthur kept Alexander at the Utica Psychiatric Center until he finally moved out of the Thornhill in October of 1958. The nursery. It seemed upon moving into the newly built Thornhill mansion in the summer of 1916 that husband and wife Cornelius and Henrietta Thornhill had put darker times behind them. Three months didn't pass before Henrietta was expecting their third child. She carried the baby to term under the medical oversight of Arliss North, the family's physician, but her pregnancy brought with it pain and sadness. Henrietta's difficult pregnancy caused Dr. North to put her on bed rest for nearly five months. Finally, on June 20th of 1917, Henrietta's delivery day came. After eight hours of labor, Henrietta finally had a chance to hold in her arms the new baby, a boy that she and her husband named Luther Ives Thornhill. But her union with the baby brought no peace. In the throes of a birth wrought with complications, North was forced to ask Cornelius Thornhill to make a choice. Either the baby or Henrietta would die before the morning's light. Cornelius chose life for his wife. Henrietta wept as Dr. North placed the stillborn infant into her arms. 
Between her sobs, she shot volleys of spurning glances at her husband. In her eyes, he had committed an act that she would never forgive. For a fortnight after the birth, Henrietta kept the body of Luther Ives in his crib, the crowning piece in his immaculately decorated nursery. The couple held an open viewing for the baby, but as they were new to the Binghampton area, few visitors came. Luther Ives was buried in the west garden of the Thornhill estate. Henrietta kept the baby's grave trimmed and dressed until the day she was arrested and taken away from the mansion by police. During an interview in prison shortly before her suicide, Henrietta disclosed to Ira Shields, a young, ambitious psychiatrist, that the sound of an infant cry often drew her to the nursery. Once inside, she would find the crib occupied by two shadows of the same presence, the body of her dead son lying still on the mattress, and another shade of a young Luther standing at the gates of his crib crying for his mother. Henrietta would remain in the nursery until the boy calmed and both manifestations of her son faded away. The servants' quarters. Elaine Trewill couldn't have understood the dark forces that skulked in the glooms, hungry for release from their millennial pain. Perhaps her decision, along with Gustav Hitchens and Ivy Riley, two other members of the house staff, to loot the body of their late master, Rule Thornhill, between his exhumation and reinternment at the new Thornhill mansion, couldn't have been prevented. Perhaps the conspirators had no agency at all. Perhaps their mutual decision to perform the tabooed act had been predecided by intelligences unseen, yet present, intangible, yet commanding. Of the three artifacts purloined from the body of Rule Thornhill, Elaine took the breastplate, an artifact procured by Rule Thornhill in life during a visit to the Valley of the Kings. She kept the breastplate in a bowl under her bed in her meager servant's quarters on the third floor of the mansion. Her decay into madness began with insomnia accompanied by thoughts that were not her own. The breastplate called to her. Beguiled by its voice, she began wearing the breastplate as she lay in her dark room. Only with the breastplate on her body could she find sleep. But during unconsciousness, the voices indoctrinated her into fulfilling that which could bring them what they most craved. Life of a sort, walking with mortals though they were nothing but shades. Above all, they craved freedom from the breastplate itself, their prison. At the behest of the voices, Elaine summoned Gustav Hitchens, her co-conspirator, to her quarters. She knew of his affection for her. She'd felt his crawling eyes all over her body on many occasions, and so, with the promise of her charms, he came. He sat on her bed, shirtless, looking into the shadows at her slender figure, his heart pounding. When she came out of the shadows, someone else had taken up a place behind her eyes. She drew a penknife from the skirt of her nightdress and, without her feet touching the floor, swooped across the room and plunged it into his heart. She drew the bowl from beneath her bed, the one that contained the breastplate, 
and held it to Gustav's chest. She ignored his ebbing moans as she caught his blood. At an early hour on the next day, young Christopher, sent by his father to summon the house cook, found Gustav and Elaine cold in each other's arms. Before passing, Elaine had written one word in blood with her finger on the floor of her quarters. Aziza. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Terrifying Lies Podcast. Our tour of the Thornhill Mansion continues in the basement, the boiler room. Prior to Cornelius Thornhill's death, with the help of Waldorf Pickman, the family's attorney, the master of the mansion drafted a contract of sale that included an unusual article, a guarantee that accommodations for Cornelius's idiot brother, Brom Thornhill, would be met until his demise. At first, after purchasing the Thornhill Mansion and converting it into the Thornhill Biddle Academy for Disadvantaged Children, Erwin Biddle made every effort to accommodate his eccentric housemate. But Brahms playing, twisted and monotonous over time, eroded Erwin's patience. On many occasions, Erwin visited Brahm, at first with polite requests for the man to stop playing, but Brahm only responded by stating that he must play for the lady to welcome her back to his room. Irwin's requests turned into demands, but his mandates fell on empty ears. Ultimately, in a fit of anger under a cloud-tentacled sky rimmed with moonlight, Irwin retrieved the hunting rifle he kept in the master bedroom's wardrobe and stalked up to the spire. He burst in on Brom and issued a final ultimatum for the man to cease playing. Brom continued to play. Irwin fired, ending the life of the idiot savant. Under duress at the prospect of breaching the property contract and losing his livelihood, Erwin Biddle lugged Brahms' body down three flights of stairs to the boiler room in the basement. He removed his shirt and shoveled enough coal into the furnace to escalate the temperature to over 1,800 degrees, converting the furnace into a crematorium. With monumental effort, he hoisted Brahms' body up and pushed it into the fire, destroying any evidence of his malfeasance. Even after Brahms' death during the harvest wind, one can hear the sound of the idiot savant playing from the spire of the mansion. The Quiet Room. The Biddle Thornhill Academy for Disadvantaged Children operated for only five years from the fall of 1934 to the same season of 1939. After Biddle's death, or disappearance, 
In the devastating fire that nearly destroyed the Thornhill Mansion, Ira Shields, chairman of the Bureau of the Census, the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene, and the Massachusetts Commissioner of Mental Disease, led an investigation of Biddle's affairs while running the academy. He found in a safe located in the headmaster's office a log that Erwin Biddle kept of daily operations. In the log, Biddle described how he dealt with child misbehavior. Early in the log, Shields noted that Biddle's disciplined style felt reasonable and relative to infractions lodged by the children. But as time passed, Biddle's writing became more manic. Toys became objects of paranoia for the headmaster. Children found with toys were severely punished by beatings, exposure, or humiliation before peers. Ultimately, Erwin Biddle built a padded cell where he sequestered children for long periods of solitary confinement for even the minutest infractions. The children, barely permitted to speak or to make a sound of any kind for that matter by the end of Biddle's administration, used charcoal drawings as a form of communication. They left messages in the form of pictographs for one another. Some of these drawings acted as warnings of Biddle's mood swings and presence. Others directed children to places where stolen food or water could be found. Many of these pictographs survived the fire as permanent fixtures on the walls and floor of the padded cell that Biddle referred to as the quiet room. Shields published a treatise in Psychiatry Today, a prominent medical journal, about the intricacy and effectiveness of what he referred to as a written language for lost children. cellar. As she watched the mental stability of her son Alexander crumble under the influence of two imaginary friends, Leslie Holland, wife of Arthur, turned to alcoholism. As part of buying the century mansion, Arthur had insisted that an expensive collection of aged wine housed in the cellar be included in the deed. At first, Leslie stole bottles from the wine cellar and brought them up to the house for consumption. Arthur became concerned when he started finding nearly empty bottles of vintage spirits hidden around the house, tucked in the backs of pantry shelves, stashed in toilet tanks, stowed under the bed. After Arthur sent Alexander, their son, away to the Utica Psychiatric Center, Leslie gave up any pretense of discretion and spent many of her days in the wine cellar drinking straight out of uncorked bottles or drafting from casks into a wine glass. On one occasion, Arthur tried to bring her forcibly up from the cellar, only to be smashed in the face with a bottle of 30-year-old wine. Leslie's decline continued until, during a binge of drinking, she drafted from a neglected cask she found tucked in the corner of the cellar. Under the cloud of inebriation, she bent her elbow to sip her glass. The wine tasted funny. She sopped up something hard along with the wine and nearly choked on the object. After sputtering for a moment, she coughed up the object into her palm and discovered that it was a human tooth. She dropped her glass, letting it shatter on the floor, and left the wine cellar in a panic. 
Arthur called in the police to investigate. Officers carried the suspect cask out of the house into the yard and smashed it open, only to discover the well-preserved body of a girl in her early teens. The authorities speculated that the girl had been in the cask for at least 30 years, but failed to discover her identification. Cold Room. Word of his brother's death came as no surprise to Cornelius Thornhill. Having a propensity for vaudeville and a good share of wanderlust, as a young man, Charles Thornhill left the family with a traveling act called Nicholas Noir's Midnight Carnival and Sideshow. This act led Rule Thornhill, father of Charles, Cornelius, and the idiot Brom, to cut Charles off from the family fortune. Unfazed by his estrangement, Charles changed his name to Griefer the Clown and continued to pursue his life as a traveling performer. Griefer showed the same predestination toward music as his idiot brother Brom. While on the road, Griefer saved his money and purchased an upright piano that he had installed in his rail car. He incorporated music into his act and found peace in making crowd after crowd laugh as he crisscrossed the country on a perpetual tour. Griefer found love in a fellow sideshow performer, a bearded woman who went by the name Angelique. In a letter to his brother, Griefer wrote about his new love and rediscovered contentment for life. Cornelius fondly remembered his older brother and was elated to continue correspondence. The next letter that came bore ill news. Nicholas Noir's midnight carnival and sideshow had befallen a horrible accident. The show train had derailed while traveling west through Kansas. Both Griefer and Angelique had perished in the accident. At Cornelius' expense, the traveling sideshow sent what remained of Griefer's possessions to the Thornhill. Among the items recovered was Griefer's coveted upright piano. Unable to have the piano moved into the attic with the rest of Griefer's possessions, Cornelius arranged for movers to place the piano in the basement cold room. Cornelius and Griefer's idiot brother, Brom, resided in the mansion spire where he played his organ continually. Although Henrietta, Cornelius's wife, became annoyed at the frequent sound of Brahms' organ playing, Cornelius often found the music therapeutic and a constant reminder of better days in his youth with his two brothers. Sometimes on significant days such as his father's birthday or on Christmas, Cornelius heard the sound of a second instrument join Brahms' organ refrains. Griefer's out-of-tune piano, a permanent fixture of the basement cold room, seemed to play along with the organ in a twisted symphony of love, loss, and longing for happier times. The Fruit Cellar after nearly a year of living in the Thornhill mansion, Arthur Holland, desperate to make the house tenable, made a few inquiries in New York and found Sybil Fairchild a reputed medium. For a fee, Sybil agreed to come to the Thornhill mansion. Upon entering the house, Sybil felt multiple presences. The mansion had become home for many spirits who were either too angry or too scared to move on. Most of the spirits belonged to children, 
many of which were victims of the fire that nearly destroyed the Thornhill in the fall of 1939. Sybil found two older spirits. She had announced that the spirit of Erwin Biddle was still in the house. Biddle still had power over the dead children who once resided in his academy. As spirit prisoners, the children had become restless and mischievous. Some would even say malevolent. Sybil discovered the presence of a much older entity, a demon called Aziza, who was thousands of years old and who had somehow been transplanted from Egypt to the house. She found two sources of Aziza's activity, one in the second floor bedroom and another in the fruit cellar. She began her cleanse in the fruit cellar, the more powerful source of Aziza's influence, by hanging several totems. She stood in the room for hours at a time, burning sage and reciting incantations. One night, when her ranting escalated to near madness, Arthur went down into the fruit cellar to see if he could help. The woman turned on him with an animalistic leer. Arthur saw in her eyes a presence that was not Sybil Fairchild. The medium's possessor ground out a few words in an ancient language which Arthur later wrote down phonetically as best he could. Klu Aldin Yishun Khuna Siandimun Li Lun Ajahamini. After uttering the words, the east wall of the fruit cellar caved in, instantly burying Sybil Fairchild. Witnessing the medium's death finalized Arthur's decision to leave the Thornhill mansion. With only a couple of quickly packed bags, he and Leslie, his wife, left the house and moved to New York, where they could be closer to their son, Alexander, who boarded at a Utica psychiatric center. The Thornhill mansion has stood deserted ever since that day on October 25th, 1958. Arthur took the manuscript of the roughly scrawled words that Sybil Fairchild had uttered that fateful day to a translator of ancient languages. The language was identified as Coptic, and the words said, He who resides in this place shall join me in hell. This has been The Thornhill Mansion, a guided tour, part two of two, written and performed by Craig Nibo, with an original musical score composed by Craig Nibo. For today's song, I thought I'd give you something brand new, an unreleased composition written specifically about the Thornhill Mansion. I give you, for your chilling, listening pleasure, a little ditty I call, Be Afraid. (laughs) 
This has been Be Afraid, composed and performed by Craig Nibo. Thanks once again for joining me here in these dusty old halls. I'm so glad to have you with me for these little sojourns of supernatural stupefaction means all the world to have you with me. Besides, they say there is safety in numbers. Until the next episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast, I wish you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast.
Please, come again. You're welcome here. Thank you.